The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd like to return this morning to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. And in the aftermath of the rebuilding of the wall, we know that this was completed in the sixth month and the 25th day of the month in only 52 days. And then in the aftermath of this, there is a rededication, obviously the dedication of the wall after the rebuilding of the wall, but a rededication to the covenant of Jehovah God, and ultimately just a rededication to the word of God, okay? So the wall is completed in the 25th day of the sixth month, Elul, and then on the first day of the next month, they meet together in this worship service. And what's really unique about this, here we find nestled in the middle of the book of Nehemiah, we actually have a pattern, a consistent pattern that closely resembles the pattern of worship that we engage in in the New Testament church, which shouldn't be surprising for us, right? Because God doesn't change his manner and desire for worship has always been simplistic, right? And it should not surprise us that his pattern of worship that he commands in the New Testament is also patterned in the Old Testament. So we have a resemblance of the same structure and simplicity of worship that we have in the New Testament church here in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which had been made for this purpose. And beside him stood, as y'all well know, one of my greatest weaknesses is pronunciation of Hebrew names. So I'm going to say these quickly, okay? They're probably not right, but we're just going to say them quickly. One of the most important things is if you don't know what you're doing, just do it quickly with confidence. Uh, there's not much confidence in this, but we'll just do it quickly, okay? And Ezra the scribe stood <clears throat> upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for that purpose. Beside him stood Matthiah, and Shema, and Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, Messiah, on, the, on his right hand and on his left hand, 
Bediah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashem and Hashbadana and Zechariah and uh, Mishalem. Uh, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people on the pulpit. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shebathiah and Hodiah and Mishiah and Kalida and Azariah and Jazabad and Haman and Beliah and the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah and Ezra the priest and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to make great mirth, because they understood the words that were declared unto them. Now, the wall was completed on the 25th day of the sixth month, and now we're on the first day of the seventh month. And if it's, uh, the Jewish months are based on lunar cycles, but if you'll just kind of bear with me for a minute, if there were 31 days in that month, this would appear to be the next first day of the week, right? The next Sabbath, which is very similar to our worship on the, now the first day of the week, right? A seven-day occurrence on the eighth day, we appear for worship on each of the first day of the week. So notice here, first of all, that they are meeting together to praise the Lord for his great blessings in their life, right? And as I try to remind you, we should always come before the Lord's presence with thanksgiving. We always begin prayers with worship. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we should always approach the Lord both in prayer and in worship with a desire. First of all, there are many petitions that we have on our heart. There are many people that stand in need of the Lord's blessings and strength and guidance and wisdom. There's so many needs. There are so many prayer requests that we have in, in our lives and on our hearts. But we always approach the Lord with, first of all, worship and praise and thanksgiving. So <clears throat> they're meeting here for public worship on most likely the Sabbath for them, which associates for us with the first day of the week, 
that we meet on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now, <clears throat> notice first of all, the unity of this worship service. All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. <clears throat> and it notes in verse 2 that both men and women were there together. It does say all those that could hear with understanding says the same thing in verse 3, that the men and the women met together and those that could hear with understanding. But we're going to find that this is a pretty extended worship service. Okay, This is actually, at a minimum, a six-hour worship service, most likely. So I think we could all say that those parents were not leaving their little toddlers unattended right, for six hours back at the house because that would be bad parenting. So <clears throat> I think we could all say that when it says, obviously, those that could hear with understanding, uh, young children can't always fully comprehend everything that is being uh, preached or sang, but they realize a lot more and they learn a lot more than you, than you think they do, but they need to be in the presence of public worship even if they don't have a, a full understanding. The people that are there, if you can't understand, you will, but if not, the pattern here is clearly that there is no separation or segregation in worship, right? What Ezra didn't say it said, okay, now we want the women on the left and we want the men on the right. And then you need to divide up by age groups. Those that are above 60, you go over here. Those that are middle-aged, you go over here. Those that are young adults go over here. And all the kids, let's put them in the cry room to, to have coloring books, right? It, Ezra didn't say that, right? They all met together as one man, men and women, worshiping the Lord together. And that is the same pattern that we find in the New Testament pattern for worship, right? Family integrated worship, not a separation of men and women, not a separation by spiritual knowledge or maturity or by natural age. There's not a separation or a segregation. The people met together as one man right? They met together as one man. Now, <clears throat> this is in the aftermath. Again, they are riding the wave of the excitement of the Lord blessing them in this special way of rebuilding this wall in only 52 days. And they are engaging in, during this time and for this generation, a very important revival for this generation. And I want you to notice the way in which the Word of God is always exalted. The Word of God is always the central focus. And there's a, there's a insatiable desire and hunger for the Word of God when the Lord sends revival. Okay, now, put this in perspective. <clears throat> it says in verse 3 that they began from the morning, and that literally means from the light. Okay, so the Jewish day, uh, 
technically begins in the evening. It's not relevant to this, but uh, the Jewish day begins in the evening, whereas ours begins at you know, 12 a.m. At the first star that was able to be seen. And then the, the day, in the sense of daylight, which is the second half of the day, began at first light, essentially sunrise, right? So, you know, a lot of people on um, Easter make a big deal about having a sunrise service, right? And if you want to wake up that early on Easter, I'm sure it's really special, right? I've never done that, personally. But they had a sunrise service here. But notice, they had a sunrise service, and they went all the way till midday. So let's just give some, um, some general time benchmarks to give us a ballpark. Uh, probably 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. I mean, six hours, six hours. And just to give you the scope of this, six hours, and it lists off all the people that spoke here, uh, and then it just kind of summarizes, uh, lists, lists specific people, but then it says the Levites. So I think there was more than one Levite that spoke. So six-plus-hour worship service, and if you list all these people off, over 15-plus preachers. <laughs> This is, this is way more intense than even uh, an association, an all-day association. Now, all the people came out to hear this. All the people came out to hear this six-hour worship service and all these preachers coming up one after one. But you want to know what's amazing about this? It's one thing for us to sit in a very blessed worship service <clears throat> and to hear the preaching uh, in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? It's, it's great to see the beauty of the Gospels and see uh, the beautiful lessons in the book of Ephesians and, and Romans or maybe even the, the Messianic prophecies uh, sprinkled all throughout the prophets. But you want to know what they were so excited and they held their attention for six hours to listen to all these preachers talk about? Leviticus. Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the ones that we can't stand, right? Because they're so monotonous, because they're so difficult to wrap. And we spent time on the radio going through that. I hope that was edifying for you, that I hope you can see Jesus Christ in all of those. Search the scriptures for in them. They testify of me. They testify of Jesus Christ. But these people didn't, didn't understand that, right? We can look back on Leviticus, and we can see Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God and his sacrifice and his blood being shed and sprinkled on the mercy seat to take away our sin. We can see that through the lens of the New Testament scriptures, right? But they may have had a touch of that, but boy, it was through a glass darkly, but it was a really glass, a really dark glass, right? They couldn't really see that. But these people listened to Leviticus <laughs> for six hours. Why? Because... They understood how far short they had fallen from the commandments and the word of God. And they had this hunger and desire for the word of God in the midst of this revival. Go back to, uh, to 2 Kings 22 in the midst of Josiah's revival, right? Do you remember what initiated Josiah's revival? They had a lot of... And he made some a great study in Josiah uh, because he became a king at a very young age, and he implemented some changes even prior to them finding the Word of God, apparently based on his own personal conviction and the law that was written in his own heart. But they, they made many societal changes even before 
uh, they found the, the word of God. But then they found the book of the law in the house of God. And then that revival went to a whole nother level, right? But what initiated that? What initiated that? Them finding the word of God. And when it was preached, the Holy Spirit applied the preaching of that word, the preaching of the law to the hearts of God's people, and they were convicted over their shortcomings of God's commandments in the law, right? And that we see that in Josiah's revival. We see that here. <clears throat> we see the, the exaltation of the word of God in the expansion of the kingdom and the revival in the book of Acts, one of the more notable um, scriptures that highlight that are the noble Bereans that searched the scriptures daily. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. There's a lot of great things said about that church in Thessalonica, right? Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a lot of great things about the church at Thessalonica, but the Bereans had them beat because they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were, they were invested in the word of God. And then if you look at revivals, even after the time of the apostles, you will find this, this hunger for the word of God that extends far beyond just the regular structured public worship service. You find that in the first great awakening, the second great awakening. Um, if you've ever read the autobiography of Elder Wilson Thompson and the spirit guided him to go I can't remember all the details that clearly now, but it feels like it was Missouri <clears throat> and the Lord uh, just moved by his, his Holy Spirit to, and, you know, 500, 1,000 people were baptized in less than a year or something like that. But he just showed up in town. The Spirit guided him to go to this specific area. And yes, they had a worship service on Sunday. But then when the Spirit was moving, so the people were just so engaged and they were so excited and they were so hungry for the Word of God that just spontaneously, not because the preacher stood up and said, we're going to have meetings every day of the week. It was because there was such a desire from the people that lo and behold, you know, we're in this idea of, <clears throat> and it's good to have structure, it's good to have uh, planned meetings, right? But our annual meetings are typically on uh, Friday night and Saturday because we don't want to be like those, those other denominations that may have it on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, right? We don't want to be like those people who call it revivals and do it in the middle of the week. But what happened... <clears throat> during Wilson Thompson's day is there was just such a hunger for the word of God that they were just having worship services every day, every day. And they were baptizing people every day. That's what revival looks like. Powerful revival looks like. Why? Because there was a hunger from the people. Okay. The ministry should always respond to the needs of the sheep. And if the sheep, you know, I, I want to have the structure of having, uh, we have a Wednesday night worship in Starkville. We have Sunday worship here. We try to have Bible studies. My schedule has, uh, has I've not been as prompt on that as I, as I should have been. But the ministry responds to the needs of the congregation. And boy, I would love if there was enough excitement from the word of God to be just like Paul and be daily 
preaching the word both publicly and from house to house because there's so many questions in the midst of a growing and thriving congregation that we don't have enough time to discuss them even in the, the structured Bible studies once a month. We don't have enough time for that. And you're saying, can you please come over and let's discuss the Word of God for three or four hours and let's have supper doing it, okay? That's the kind of thriving environment of what real and, uh, revival looks like. And then we're talking about, again, the centrality of the Word of God and the way that just worship just spontaneously combusts and just keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, and, and I know, yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an old curmudgeon, old Baptist, just like, just like y'all probably are. And I, I look at things skeptically, you know, you may, you may do too. And, uh, you know, I, I did examine uh, what was happening up in Asbury College in Kentucky, if you know about that. And there's some other various ones that, that broke out. And they're definitely... We're not worshiping, in my, in my opinion, according to the New Testament pattern of worship. But you know what? It sure appears to me that the Holy Spirit was moving among those people. Okay? There were people that drew closer to Christ in the midst of that. But you want to know what happened? Is they showed up for a regular worship service. Whatever, mid- midweek. I can't remember if it was Wednesday. We'll just say it was Wednesday. Just a regular Wednesday service. And then people just stayed. They stayed praying for one another, confessing their sins. And then there was a continuous worship service for like two weeks. Two weeks. Now, these were students that had classes, right? These were people that had... Now, unfortunately, as our sinful natures uh, always make things, it became somewhat of a novelty. And then people from uh, other places and other other even other countries were coming to view this novelty. But for the people that were there and students at Asbury College, um, I, don't, I doubt any of them are coming to join an old Baptist church. But you know what? They were drawing closer to Jesus Christ, in the, and their spirit was being revived. We hope their spirit's revived, and maybe they'll, they'll study the Word of God and see the word predestination and maybe seek out some, seek out some old Baptists. But, but what that is... Another consistent pattern of what? An exaltation of the Word of God and revival and a desire, a hunger to go far beyond just the basic requirements of public worship, okay? And just to put this in, a, in a, such a radical perspective, okay, Six hours of worship, 15 plus preachers, and they were excited to listen to the book of Leviticus. Okay, then after this, they're so convicted as they ought to have been because we find out that there were many things that they were not obeying according to the commandment of God. And they're very convicted of that, which by the way, this is another very important um, role of the New Testament minister that the word of God in many ways if the Spirit of God is moving, which is our desire, that we preach the Word, that we have a lesson to deliver to you, but our desire is that the Spirit of God applies that message to your heart to where you understand the Word of God. And not just that you understand the correct exposition of the text, but that you understand where you stand and relate to God's 
commandments. And if you have some besetting sin where you struggle in that area, we hope that the Holy Spirit will give you a conviction of conscience that you need to make changes in this specific area according to the mandate of the Word of God. But the pattern of the minister should always be repent. <laughs> it should always be repent. But I don't ever want anyone to leave here grieved and overwhelmed and sad. Notice that was the initial response, as it should have been, because they were falling short of the Word of God in many ways. That was the initial response. But the ministry goes and tells them, don't leave here convicted and sad and grieved. Now, you need to feel that conviction of conscience enough to where you actually go, and you don't just feel bad in the moment. A repent is a, Repentance is a change of action. You need to go have that change of action. But I don't want anyone to ever leave a worship service feeling convicted. Why? Because the end, the end of that conviction should always be, but Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and you're saved by grace alone, right? So they feel this conviction of sin and they said, yes, there's a time and you need to go repent. You need to go change your actions, but we don't want to leave. We don't want you to leave here mourning. Instead, they say in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And, and see, that's where we always end, or we ought to end. Every message is Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? Yes, you feel that conviction of sin, but praise God, that sin that you feel convicted of, he's paid for it on the tree of the cross and you're saved by grace alone, amen? The joy of the Lord is your strength, okay? And, the, and that, that joy was applied to the hearts of God's people. Why? Because they understood the word of God. They understood the preaching of the word. So, yes, there was this, this uh, worship service uh, at the first day of the seventh month. Again, six hours, a whole bunch of preachers. But then, look how this continued. They, then they, they realized that they had been neglecting, since they'd been back in Jerusalem, they've been neglecting one of the most important feasts that is commanded in the word of God, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the, the last of the feast throughout the year that's in that is commanded in the seventh month and they read in the word of god that they're supposed to be dwelling in tabernacles for a week so then they realize oh wait a minute we're not doing that so then they they follow the command of the word of god and they make booths and they dwell in them but notice every single day during the feast of tabernacles and the feast of booths this is in uh, chapter 8 and verse 18 and day by day, from the first day unto the last, he read in the book of the law, and they kept the feast seven days, and the eighth day was a solemn assembly. And actually, let's back up. I skipped verse 13. That's the first day of the week, and where everybody, everybody uh, showed up for public worship. But then on the second day, were gathered together the chief of the fathers, the priests, the Levites, and Ezra, even to understand the words of the law. So then you have what can essentially be deemed a preacher's meeting, right? You have the leaders. You have the people that are called to teach the Word of God to those that they have been put in responsibility to teach, and they meet together. Why? Because they realize there were some things we heard yesterday that we don't really understand, right? So we need to meet together in a more specific, detailed, concentrated way so we can understand, so we can better teach the people. So you have the follow-up there, 
of the leaders of the people because they realized they needed to understand more about the word of God. Then you have the teaching of the word every single day on the Feast of Tabernacles. And then you fast forward to a little bit later in the month. <clears throat> this is in Nehemiah chapter 9 and in verse 3. They, let's reverse uh, to first. The, uh, this is the 24th day of the month of the seventh month, the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins. And they stood up in their place and they read in the book of the law of the Lord, their God, one fourth part of the day and the other fourth part of the day, they confessed and worship the Lord, their God. Well, these people are committed, aren't they? <laughs> right? You want to know why? Because they have been dormant from the exposure to the word of God. You know, this is essentially what we find in the book of Acts because the church was in, their, in its first love. They're hearing these things for the first time. And those Gentiles, I think about those Gentiles there in Acts chapter 13, and they said, Paul, we're hearing things we've never heard before. What you preach today, we want you to show up on the next Sunday and preach the exact same thing to us. <laughs> right? Why? Because they were hearing things they'd never heard before. And I guarantee you, he didn't just preach. If, if, if I have a whole bunch of people come to me with that kind of excitement, I'm not going to say, okay, great, we'll see you next Sunday. No, you better believe I'm going to be talking to them and studying with them in the midst of that week, right? Why? Because there's this hunger and desire, and that's what we find in Spirit-led, authentic revivals. Now, we hope we have many revivals here and there, but this special movement of the Holy Spirit, look at, look at this almost in our mind. Well, in American Christianity, it's not almost. It is radical, radical desire and hunger for the Word of God. I mean, if you tell people just that you're, you're willing to go um, to a church meeting on a weekend instead of ball games and hobbies and and whatever insert whatever your preference is on the weekend that's radical to most christianity but what if you were engaged in from the first day of the week through was this the 24th day in 20 look at in 24 days <laughs> how committed they were to the word of god right anyone would look at that and it would deem to be <clears throat> radical, impractical, right? But what stemmed that? What stemmed that? Because the Spirit of God was moving in the hearts of his people because they were not just hearing the word, but they were understanding the word, okay? Let's keep going. <clears throat> so first of all, you have here in this worship service, you have... Um, All the people met together. Unity. Family integrated worship. You have this hunger and desire for the word of God. And I want to mention before we move on from that, that's what we find in the book of Acts too, right? You remember Acts chapter 20 when Paul was going to Troas and he was only there for essentially one night. And it says that he preached to the people at Troas all the way till midnight. And then, of course, we know Eutychus. He fell out <laughs> and uh, broke his neck and died. Paul promptly resurrects him from the dead. And what do they do when Eutychus is resurrected? Oh, are you good now? Are you good? 
Now, Paul, let's get back to what I asked you about before. And they continued that dialogue all the way until the breaking of day when Paul went to the next city. <laughs> so the guy fell over, broke his neck, dead. Paul resurrected him. They're like, are you good? Are you good, Eutychus? Okay, you're good. All right, now let's get back to what we were talking about. By the way, the word preach there comes from a Greek word where we get our word dialogue. As you know, there ain't nobody that's going to sit and listen to Paul talk in a monologue one person speaking where you're just listening like we do here typically in public worship. None of you are going to listen from supper to midnight from just one person talking, right? No, it's a dialogue. It's what we old Baptists would call hard shelling, where you're asking a question and then you're giving an exposition of uh, a text or giving instruction on a specific topic, and then that leads to another question, which leads to another question, Right? And these people knew that the Apostle Paul was only in town for maybe 12 hours <clears throat> on his way, returning back to Jerusalem. And they had such a desire when this Apostle was in town that they said, we're going to spend all night peppering him with questions. And the Apostle Paul was blessed to, uh, to minister to them. <clears throat> so... You have this hunger and desire for the Word of God. And then, notice the structure of the way in which they do this. They open up the Word of God, and he stands on a pulpit of wood. Now, the only reason we have a pulpit, by the way, is just for logistics so people can see in the back. Now, our pulpit's not very high here because our facility's not that, not that big. People in the back, even if I stood on the floor, you could probably see me okay. But... If you have thousands of people, you're going to need somebody on a little bit of a pedestal just so they can see, okay? And, and boy, sometimes we get all worked up and think that the, uh, the actual lumber in the pulpit is more holy than the lumber on the rest of the floor. The only reason we have a pulpit is so people in the back can see better, okay? That's it. <laughs> and some people were like, oh, no, no, if you're, uh, if you're not liberated, you can't stand in the pulpit. Listen, the only reason we have a pulpit... The only reason we have a pulpit is so people in the back can see better. <laughs> That's why they had a pulpit here. Because you've had thousands of people. He couldn't just stand on the floor because they couldn't see him. He got on an elevated platform where people can see. Okay? That's the only reason he had a pulpit is for visibility. So then all these people stood with him. He opened the book, verse 5, in the sight of <clears throat> all the people for he was above all the people. And he, when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, I'm not saying that we need to follow this pattern exactly in the New Testament, right? Uh, feel free to keep your seat. But, but what it has here is it shows a reverence for the word of God, right? They open it up and they stand up, they take attention. And Ezra blessed the Lord. And notice this, the people answered, amen, amen. <laughs> Feel free, if the Spirit so moves, <laughs> for you to say amen. That's biblical, by the way. <laughs> right here in the Word of God. Now, don't fabricate it. Don't fabricate it. But even if you, because I do that sometimes. I amen in my head. It doesn't always come out in my, in my mouth. But I tell you, it's a great encouragement if you feel so led to do that. And it's very biblical. That if you hear a point that really resonates with your soul and you say amen in your heart, you, you have the liberty. <laughs> you have the liberty to say amen verbally. 
by the way, old Baptist boy, we get terrified of uh, showing any, <laughs> one of my minister friends who shall remain unnamed, uh, describes, and it's not an unfair accusation, uh, that some of the um, churches, maybe even some of the churches in our area, it's like preaching to mannequins. Just, now thankfully, I can usually tell from, I know y'all well enough, I know your faces, I know a, an amen face, even if it doesn't come out verbally. <laughs> I don't get much verbal, but I know your faces. I know you well enough to know your faces. And I know amen faces, even if it doesn't come out verbally. But some, some places you go, you get nothing. Just nothing. And it's like preaching to mannequins. And boy, I'm not saying you can't have liberty there, but it's hard. Sometimes it's drudging through, and I'm thankful that y'all are as responsive as you. And also, I want to commend you, by the way. Y'all, y'all well know that I don't always get done by 12 o'clock nowadays, right? I've got a lot. To, by the way, we got a lot to cover in the Word of God, and we don't have much time. We don't have, I'm not going to apologize for preaching 50, 55 minutes or maybe even now. I'm not going to apologize for that because we only have a limited period of time to read, verse 8, read in the book distinctly, give you the sense thereof so you can understand it. So you can apply, and it's not just about you having an academic knowledge of the Word of God. You need to understand the Word of God so you can apply it in your daily life so you know how to wield that sword against the attacks of Satan. And guess what? If I can pack, uh, pack in another 15 or 20 minutes on a weekly basis to give you instruction that I hope can be profitable so you understand the Word of God so you're better equipped to serve God on a daily basis, in light of... of this type of commitment to the Word of God, I'm not going to apologize if I preach the full 60 minutes, <laughs> okay? And by the way, I really want to commend you for staying attentive. You do, and I appreciate that because, boy, talk about some of those mannequin churches. I've been some other places where they check out at 1145, okay? And y'all don't, and I commend you for that. But Ezra opens the book. They show a reverence for the word of God. They, they even say amen in response to the reading of the word. They lifted up their hands. You know, not everything that's written in the book of the Psalms do we engage in in public worship, right? <clears throat> um, there's not much described here in, in, by way of singing um, because I think maybe in the aftermath he goes, Tells them, go, go home, the joy of the Lord is your strength. They probably sang in the aftermath, but they were so convicted <laughs> of their sins. I don't think there was much singing uh, during this six-hour period. But we know from the New Testament that God's pattern of worship is preaching from the Word of God, exactly what we find here in verse 8, opening the book, preaching it distinctly, giving the sense thereof so you can understand the Word of God, and then prayers, right? One person leading prayers in a public way as you hopefully pray right along with them. But then the singing portion of worship, right? And we find no indication in the New Testament that there is the use of musical instruments, that, got, that that's God's designed pattern for public worship. We don't find any indication of that in the New Testament, but we do in the book of the Psalms, right? And if you look throughout the whole word of God, most of the time, outside of the kingship and the reign of David, because David was a man after God's own heart, and he was a musician. And the Lord, there, there have been, God does not change. 
and his holiness and his character and his commandments do not change. But there have been times where he has given certain people a little bit of leniency. You know, God's pattern has always been one man and one woman for one lifetime, right? That's always been the pattern. But you know what? He didn't strike people dead in the Old Testament for marrying more than one woman. But that was not his pattern. That was never his pattern. And it's really the same way with David. David was a man that was a musician, and he desired not to, to just make music, but he desired to use his talents of music to praise and glorify the Lord. And the Lord gave him a little bit of permissive authority just during David's lifetime because David was a man after God's own heart, and he was a natural musician. Now, when were most of the Psalms written? During the reign of David or even by David, right? So all these references that we have in the Psalms is a reference to the Lord giving David a little bit of license to say, you desire to worship me with, with these instruments? I'm going to give you the license, but if you take out the reign of David and all of the Bible, most of the time, if there are instruments involved in public worship, it is usually associated with pagan worship. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the entire Word of God is musical instruments in worship spoken positively at all except for this brief period where God gave a little bit of liberty to David. Most of the time, remember what happened in uh, the book of Daniel and Babylon? They started playing instruments and that was your cue that you bow down and worship the false idol of Nebuchadnezzar or other graven images, right? So the consistent pattern, now, hey, I'm thankful for, for musical instruments, right? But God has never commanded, he's never desired to use them in public worship. Now, I have no problem listening to some contemporary Christian music, and I feel like I can honor the Lord in listening to that uh, on the radio or on my phone or podcast, but God has not commanded that to be used in his pattern of New Testament worship. So I give all that caveat to say <laughs> that just because it says something in the Psalms doesn't mean necessarily that we need to follow that pattern, right? But I'll tell you, I don't think there's anything wrong with raising up holy hands if you, again, don't do it to draw attention to yourself. But there should be something that moves us to action about public worship. Okay? It doesn't have to be verbal. It doesn't have to be you raising your hands. But it's sad that the, on the rare occasion that we see anyone do that in an old Baptist church, people start sweating, start getting nervous. Okay? No. There should be something that, that makes us desire to raise up those hands. I'm not telling you to do it just because, but if you feel led to do it, there ain't nothing wrong with it, <laughs> okay? They lifted up their hands. <laughs> some ministers are, are opening some avenues of fellowship uh, with some African-American Primitive Baptist churches. and that, That's great. That's fantastic. You know, there's some stuff in the uh, in the Psalms that talks about clapping your hands. 
Now, don't again, don't do it to... As a matter of practice, you probably don't want to do that here because we would just wig out, right? We're just, we're just two old Baptists. <laughs> but you know what? It wouldn't hurt us one bit to go worship with some African-American churches <laughs> and have a little bit more... Well, we got all the truth in the world, but it wouldn't hurt us a bit to have a little bit more spirit. <laughs> To have some amens and to have some clapping and have some hands raised. Why? Because God's so good. That's right. God's so good. So they said amen. They raised their hands. And they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, I don't want you to stick your head on the ground. But you should have that posture of soul, right? That should be the way that your soul approaches worship. So they stand up. Again, long worship service, 15 plus preachers. But notice the purpose of this. They caught, verse 7, they caused the people to understand the law. You know, we always say, I have no ability to preach. Preaching occurs when the Holy Spirit anoints a message and applies it to your heart. Now, I need to do my duty to study and to pray, and you need to do your, your duty to do the same. But notice in verse 8, they read in the book of the law distinctly. They could understand exactly what the people were saying. And they gave the sense thereof. In the New Testament, this is described as rightly dividing the word of God, right? They read in the book of the law distinctly. I remember Brother Joel telling me <clears throat> that when his dad, who was beginning to speak, that was during the time, back in the quote, we talked <laughs> last week about the good old days, the old Baptist church, where nobody could understand what anybody was saying. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, we had, we had people out the doors. We had, you know, houses packed, mm -hmm. hundreds of people outside. But it was just a bunch of hee-haw grunting and you couldn't understand anything anybody said because the general disposition of Primitive Baptist was this sing-song that nobody could understand. <laughs> and supposedly those were the good old days. And I remember Brother Joel telling me that when his dad began to speak, he, this is just, again, supposedly the good old days, tells you where we were. <laughs> Praise God, this is not really an issue now. But as a young child... He doubted if his dad was called to preach because he got up and he read the word of God distinctly where people could understand him and gave the sense thereof. Why? Because people thought that the spirit was just as much a hee-haw grunting and sing-songing where nobody could understand the word. If you can't understand, that's the whole purpose, by the way. When it talks in 1 Corinthians 14 about speaking in tongues, he says, look, if you don't have an interpreter, you don't need to do it. Why? Because it doesn't provide any edification to the body. Why? Because nobody can understand a lick of what you're saying. <clears throat> and if people can't understand what you're saying, how are they going to be edified? The answer is they can't, right? So therefore, what's better than speaking in tongues? Prophesying, which is talking about preaching in that context. So we open up the Word of God and we explain it clearly to where hopefully the Spirit of God will apply it to where you can understand it. And then during that same time period, we had a bunch of hee-haw sing-songers. It was frowned upon to study. 
I mean, so I've heard. I wasn't around those days. But that's what everybody tells me. And supposedly, again, those were the good old days. People didn't believe in studying the Word of God. They got up and they just made a bunch of noises and you couldn't understand 90% of what they said. But just because we were in a general disposition of godliness and morality and Christianity in America, people came in droves. Why? Because even though I don't know 90% of what he said, but I felt the Spirit of God. <laughs> I, I have no idea what the meaning of that text is, but in this location, I felt the Spirit of God. That's why people came. Not because they understood the proper exposition of a text. But listen, the reason why we preach the Word of God is so that you, if the Spirit blesses, will understand it. And that's why it's incumbent upon the preacher, the minister, to diligently study and have an understanding that the Spirit blesses him in his study. How's he going to have you understand what the verse says if he hadn't studied it to where he has an understanding of what it says, right? It's amazing to me that study was frowned upon, supposedly, among our people back in the supposed good old days. This is the pattern of public worship. We open up the Word of God. And I, boy, I, I'm so thankful for the song service. I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ has promised, promised to sing right along with us. I tell you, um, there were some people in the uh, church I grew up in, and we had a good song service because we had uh, singing schools. But there were a lot of people that just plumb didn't participate. They just sat there. I'm glad y'all don't. Y'all all participate and sing fervently. Thankful for that. But I had a little bit of a misunderstanding of the song service. Because our song service, we always come to the Lord's presence with thanksgiving and with singing. But Jesus Christ has promised us if we sing in the midst of the church, what's he going to do? He's going to sing right along with us. Which, by the way, you need to structure your mornings to make sure you don't miss one song with Jesus Christ. You need to make sure you don't miss one stanza with Jesus Christ. Don't come in at 1055 and sing one song with Jesus Christ. <laughs> come in and sing every song with Jesus Christ. And there's no reason that we can't all be promptly early in preparation for that. But don't miss one song with Jesus Christ. And I'm, so I'm so thankful for the, for the song service. But listen, God has not ordained for the singing of songs to be the salvation of people's souls. In a temporal context, as you will know, right? God has not ordained for the prayers of the saints. He's not ordained for singing and, and prayers. The preaching of the cross is what saves them that believe. The preaching of the word of God. And this is not the one, one compliments the other certainly. But th this idea in Christianity that we have today where there's these little 15-minute sermonettes and, and there's no, they're no different than any TED Talks or general uh, emotional uh, general encouragement that you would get from a psychiatrist. Listen, 
the pattern of worship is you open up the Word of God, a minister open up the Word of God, giving you the sense thereof so you can understand it and apply it to your life in service to the Lord, okay? Not a little bitty sermonette to get... <laughs> I was talking to a guy, um, a recruiter. He lives up in Indiana, uh, and I was uh, talking to him about a, about a job opportunity. It didn't materialize, but I was telling him, I'm a minister, and I'm a pastor. And, and then he just kind of, we, we kind of left off on the, the work aspect, and he started asking me about various church things. He said, how long do you preach? I was like, usually, you know, 50 minutes or an hour. He said, what? He said, I'm Catholic. <laughs> and we only spend about 15 minutes. And he's like, wow, it sounds like you've got a lot of meat on the bone. I thought, I hope so. I hope so. Why? Because we've got a lot in the Word of God that you need to understand. And you need to, be, you need to hear it distinctly, and you need to give the sense thereof. I'll also say that it's my opinion that the general disposition of pulpit ministry should be expositional. Now, I preach topical. I preach narrative. I especially do topical on the radio. And as you well know, as we try to engage in some of these expository sermon series, there's a time where we take, we take detours from time to time. But God inspired his word in such a way where it is perfectly balanced for what the sheep need, okay? And ministers have a tendency to have our own little hobby horses and nobody wants to preach about fornication and adultery, right? Nobody wants to preach about all these negative things, but if you preach the whole counsel of God, you're gonna have to deal with it mm -hmm. from time. Nobody wants to preach about false prophets. Nobody wants to preach about all these things that are, are difficult topics. But if you stay committed to preach the whole counsel of God, and if you just commit to general expository preaching, the Word of God will always give you a balanced diet. Think about the book of Ephesians. The first three are primarily doctrinal, theologically focused. The last three, therefore, because of all that, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, and it's all practical, right? The practical application based on what God's already done for you. And if you just preach the book of Ephesians, you have a perfectly balanced diet. And it's hard. It's hard for a minister to both feed the lambs those that are young in their maturity, and those that are the sheep, that are, that are well-seasoned. You want to know the best way to do that? Just preach the Word of God the way He inspired it, right? Now, as, as we've done many times from time to time, um, we've engaged in topical sermons, narrative sermons, as well as sermon series. But I, I believe the general disposition of pulpit ministry should be exact. You want to know what they did? They didn't, they didn't open up the Word of God and say, okay, we're going to talk about adultery. We're going to go here, 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 here. We're going to talk about it. You want to know what they did? They opened up the Word of God and they read it exactly the way that God inspired it, right? And they gave the sense thereof, but this is where, this is where it matters. <clears throat> Our desire is that the Spirit of God takes the, the hopefully a well-studied and a well-delivered message and lesson, and if the Holy Spirit takes that and applies it to your soul, then hopefully you can understand the Word of God to apply it in your walk of daily discipleship. And if that's happened, then preaching has occurred. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure y'all feel like it's all just preacher talk. Oh, we need your prayers. Oh, we can't preach. Oh, we can't. We have no capacity to preach outside of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I can, I can 
give you a well-studied lesson. I can give you, uh, I'm not a four-point guy, but I can give you four points of what this text means. And it can be as dry as a bone, and I, I taught the lesson appropriately. But you know what? Preaching happens when there is power and demonstration of the Spirit, right? When the Spirit applies it to your heart and you understand it. And then, well, no, notice this, <laughs> these two times it says they understood it, and, and they understood it first of all, and they said, as they ought to, kind of similar to, to Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean living. I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean I'm nothing but wretchedness, I'm nothing but sin. I can't believe that I've fallen so, so short of the glory of God. Then the ministers stand up and they said, yes, that's true. <laughs> yes, that's true, but go in the joy of the Lord. And then... Look at the aftermath of that. Don't, don't, don't ever leave. And I hope that I can be purposeful enough in the structure of my sermons that, and the Spirit applies it, hopefully, to never end the message with something that's anything other than comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Okay? So they say, go your way. Eat the fat there. Enjoy the joy of the Lord. And then all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. Why? They started out saying, we just need to sit here and cry all day. We need to weep. We need to mourn. Hey, and you need to repent. You need to get change your actions. But the ministers then said, don't let the grief of your conviction quench your fruitfulness. No, go in the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then when the ministers told them that... And they understood the word of the Lord. Now they go with great joy. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Aren't you glad that we have the rest of the story of the book of Leviticus, right? <laughs> you know, we can look at that and we can see the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But they hadn't got that message yet. They needed a minister to tell them about it. They needed a minister to tell them the joy of the Lord is their strength. Okay? But I, I love how nestled here in the, in the middle of the book of Nehemiah is essentially our pattern of New Testament worship, right? And why is that the case? Because God is consistent. God's consistent. His desire for worship has always been consistent and simplistic. It's always been. And why is it simplistic? Why is it simplistic? To remove all the frills, to remove all the distractions, to where all the focus and praise and glory is on the Lord. That's why he keeps it simple. That's why your, your attention doesn't need to be on the fog machine and the praise band and the singer and the drums and the, all this, this just foolishness that we have in American Christianity because you're going to leave and say, man, he really killed the drums today. No, the focus is on glorifying the Lord. And by the way, that's also why men, why the Lord calls men that are not very skillful in speech <laughs> like me. Oh, me, I hate listening to my sermons. <laughs> I hate editing them. Because I misspeak so, and, I, and I, it's inevitable, but my, my prayer is always, please don't let my, my mistakes detract from the message. I mean, I'm going to make mistakes. That's going to happen. But I don't want them to be bad enough that they detract from the message. They, they distract from the message. But that's why God does not call eloquent speakers. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I'm an accountant who, outside of preaching, is generally 
afraid of public speaking. <laughs> That's who God calls, right? He calls, he calls the Moseses that don't really have any ability, right? And why does he do that? So you can look at that vessel and say, whew, if I got anything out of that, that must have been the Holy Spirit, right? He doesn't, he doesn't typically call eloquent speakers. Why? So that he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. And we certainly hope that'll be the case in our New Testament public worship as well. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.